The following broadcast is released under a Creative Commons license. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. I believe He lived and died, and that He rose again. I believe and trust in Him. Ascended into hell, Christ our living head will one day come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe and trust in Him. I will trust in my Redeemer, sing of His love that lasts. Pastor Yeshua. You've been listening to Creed by Richard Jensen from his album, Order of Service. By way of introduction, pastor is an acrostic which stands for preaching all salvation through one Redeemer. Our Redeemer, Yeshua, Jesus, is the Hebrew name for the Lord. It means Yahweh, the Lord, is salvation. Translated from Hebrew into the Greek language, the name Yeshua becomes Jesus. The English transliteration for Jesus is Jesus. This program deals with apologetics, questions on and about God, the Bible, and the Christian faith. I take questions and seek by Scripture to give answers and encouragement for everyone, including the tough-minded living in today's skeptical society. And now, let's join Pastor Yeshua. Welcome to Pastor Yeshua. In part one of this episode, we began to make a discerned study of what God's Word, the Bible, has to say in context about the creation ordinance and institution of marriage. As before, our goal is by God's grace to come away with the necessary information revealed by God to understand, initiate, maintain, grow, and fully appreciate the beauty and sanctity of the marriage relationship as designed and intended by God. It is also our goal to answer and debunk many of the myths, aberrational beliefs, and misunderstandings which all too often accompany those who are skeptical, critical, or even hostile to God's Word. In episode one, we broke ground on the fact that, as opposed to the idea that marriage is some simplistic arrangement defined according to the dictates of constant, influx humanistic variables based upon nothing more than convenience and self-gratification, marriage is in reality a 
Creation ordinance designed, instituted, maintained, and blessed by God as a type pointing towards its intended substance. The substance, as was discussed, was and is the relationship between Christ, who is the substance of Adam, and his bride, Eve, the church, who are a special creation like Eve, born from the sacrifice and death of Jesus. In the second episode, we began to examine further evidence and insight regarding biblical types and their substance. We looked at the account of the meeting and marriage of Isaac and Rebekah, as well as the ancient Jewish wedding as classical examples of the type of marriage. We also looked at Adam and Eve's respective roles in the fall, beginning with Genesis chapter 3. In part 3, we began our goal diligently searching out the scripture in an effort to better understand the biblical meaning and understanding of marriage, as well as to answer and debunk many of the myths, aberrational beliefs, and misunderstandings which man, sin, separation, and the world have over time incorrectly attributed and or attached to marriage, God, or his word. As we concluded episode 3, we had just examined several scriptural references in Matthew and Mark made by Jesus regarding marriage and divorce. In parts 4 and 5, we turned our attention to the New Testament epistles and letters. In this episode, we continue with Paul's letter to the Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 through 33, we read, Quote, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, Love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies." He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord, the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his mother and father, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they shall two shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband." Unquote. Notice in verse 21 that Paul begins by saying to everyone, both male and female alike, that they are to submit themselves one to the other in the fear of the Lord. 
Typically, the atheist and the secular humanist skip verse 21 and move immediately to verse 22. In reading verse 22, the skeptic is focusing on the word female, the word submit, and the word man, and creating a straw man argument that the Bible is advocating that all women should be ruled under the foot of a Neanderthal, unregenerate male, whose only desire is to treat every female as a worthless slave. But that's not where the passage starts, nor is the above character of what God's word is saying in context. Instead, at the outset, God gives revelation that both men and women are to submit themselves to one another, to others, and ultimately to God. In order to understand what Paul is saying, we need to address the issue of submission. In point of fact, the underlying understanding of the concept of submission takes us back to the starting point of ultimate authority. On one side, we have the idea that man is the ultimate authority for meaning, morals, beauty, significance, truth, and reality. Within this worldview, each person determines ultimate authority according to what is right in their own eyes. Each person is ultimately autonomous. There is some allowance for percentage, consensus, opinion, and culture, but whenever the percentage, consensus, opinion, and culture disagree with the autonomy of the individual, the individual will rebel until their personal opinion is allowed and permitted within the consensus. Thus, submission is antithetical to personal autonomy. Autonomy equals freedom from responsibility to the secular humanist. On the other side, we have the idea that God is the ultimate authority for everything, including meaning, morals, beauty, significance, truth, and reality. There is no personal opinion consensus percentage with which God looks for to see whether his will is in vogue or not. Men and women are a creation of God whose purpose and meaning is to give worship, glory, and honor to God in everything we do. We are not God. We are not becoming God. We are not capable in of ourselves of being equal to or like God. In short, we are far less than God. We are subordinate to and in submission to God in all ways, whether we believe in God or not. We see with the above that if we adopt a biblical worldview and God grants us discernment, that we have to abandon the lie, the deception initiated by Satan in the garden, that man can be like God via his own knowledge or efforts and simply submit to the all-sufficient grace supplied by God. There is always submission. The question is, to what or to whom should we rightly submit? If you're going to say man, i.e. myself, fine, just remember, there is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. So, let's be clear. If God draws us to reconciliation and 
an abiding relationship with Christ, we know that he implants his spirit. He raises us to the newness of life. We are given a new nature and have the mind of Christ. Paul agrees in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16, saying, quote, For who hath known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ, unquote. When we reflect on the, quote, mind of Christ, unquote, we have to look at the life, ministry, and attitude of Jesus with regard to submission. In doing so, so as not to be accused of drawing upon my own opinion, let us look at what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 2 through 11. Quote, Fulfill ye my joy, that ye may be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem the other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross." Wherefore God hath also highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth, and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." Unquote. You will observe, firstly, that Paul says, quote, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, unquote. This means that if Paul was adjuring the Philippian believers to seek having Christ's mind, that it is possible to have it. Not only so, but it was something they and we should strive for. It follows, then, that in order to strive for something, we need to know exactly what we are striving for so that we can determine whether, in fact, or not, we have obtained what we are striving for. So, what is the mind of Christ? Well, the answer to this question is the topic of Philippians chapter 2, verses 2 through 11, as well as Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 through 33. Essentially, at its heart, Jesus demonstrated submission and humility to both God the Father and to those whom he came to seek and to save. Jesus, who was fully God the Son, had every right to all authority as God. Yet he repeatedly yielded and submitted himself to God the Father's will in all things. In addition, Jesus demonstrated the heart of a humble servant to those who were his own. This was despite the fact that no man then or now 
had any reason to recommend or justify such humility and servanthood on Jesus's part. Everything that Jesus did was in accordance to the sovereign will and pleasure of God the Father. Everything that he did in his role of a humble servant was with an eye towards his own, the outcalled ones, the church, his bride, the substance of Eve. This was the mind of Christ. It is the same mind which Paul adjures the Philippians to have. It is the same relationship of submission that Paul recommends all believers extend to one another. It is the same submission that Paul encourages wives to have toward their husband. And why not? After all, if biblical marriage is the type of the substance which is Christ and his church, then we should expect to see the same mind of Christ's submission of a godly bride, the wife, toward her husband, the bridegroom, as we do the bride, the church, toward its bridegroom, Christ. Some will perhaps protest because Paul, God, the Bible, or Christianity uses the word submission in connection to a woman, that they are promoting and maintaining some chauvinistic, misogynistic philosophy. But again, this is not true. Paul begins by admonishing all believers to submit to one another as to God. But nowhere does Christian submission imply or carry some negative aspects and definitions of worldly submission. Neither God, Paul, the Bible, or biblical Christianity ever requires any believer to voluntarily or willingly submit themselves to ungodly authority. But believers are called to submit to God. Believers are called to submit to godly authority, and this is the key. In order that we better understand what this key is, we must look to our Creator, God, to the degree that our fallen and finite minds may comprehend Him. This is important because at the outset we are told in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, quote, And God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, unquote. And again in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, quote, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female, created he them, unquote. In both cases, God reveals that mankind, i.e. both female and male, were created in God's image. As we look at the original word translated God as well as the pronoun quote-unquote are, we see unmistakable declarations in indicating that God is triune. The remainder of God's word, both in the Old Testament and the New, repeatedly confirm and reveal that God is comprised of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. All are equal in nature and being, but are different in function. Each plays a distinct role in creation and redemptive history. Since God declares that mankind, i.e. man and woman, are created in his image, 
we should perhaps expect to see the same comparison of similarity of being in nature with differences in role and function. The problem mankind faces is that mankind is not wholly God, neither indeed can he be. Man is merely an image of God, not God himself. Man is mutable, whereas God does not change and is immutable. As we look at the various interworkings of the triune Godhead, we see a harmonious union of purpose and sovereign will in creation and redemption. We don't see confusion, argument, struggle, or antagonism within the Godhead because God is perfect and holy. God is a God of peace and order. That which God designs and creates is designed and created to have peace and order. As we look at God's creation, particularly mankind, we should see aspects of both union of being, soul, spirit, and purpose, and difference of function, role, and authority even prior to the fall. For example, as stated earlier in terms of being, soul, spirit, and purpose, we know that God created both men and women, i.e. mankind, in his image. In this respect, in terms of being in nature, men and women are equal. At the same time, not unlike the Godhead, in general, men and women have differences in terms of function, role, and authority. We would also have to recognize that in every respect, God's nature, character, and attributes are all perfect and immutable, while those of mankind are inferior to God even prior to the fall. As we factor in the various effects of sin, those aspects of God's image which were given by God to man have degenerated in ways which none of us can today can fully comprehend or appreciate. Yet, cursory as the initial Genesis accounts regarding the created attributes of Adam and Eve are, we can still glean some important clues. Firstly, when God created Adam, God formed him from the dust of the ground, whereas when God created Eve, he caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam and created Eve from a rib taken from Adam's side. Both were a special creation act on the part of God. Both were made in the image of God. However, Adam was created first and then Eve. Eve was taken from one of Adam's ribs. A rib is both close to the heart and protects the heart. More specifically, we are told that the rib was taken from Adam's side. Consequently, Eve is not in front of Adam. She is not underneath or underfoot. She is not behind or above. She is equal. The two walk side by side. Hence, Adam and Eve are one in the sense of being united in being, purpose, the image of God, spirit, and soul. But because Eve is taken out of Adam, she is now distinct in role, function, and authority. Finally, 
God then brings them together, unites them in common purpose and destiny. While all of this may seem like poetic fancy to the secular humanist, myth to the atheist, those with discernment will understand quite differently. The creation model between Adam and Eve closely parallels its substance. The first Adam, like his substance Christ, the second Adam, was there from the beginning before Eve. Eve, Adam's bride, was created like the church, i.e. Christ's bride, from Christ's pierced side after he was fallen asleep in death on the cross. Eve, the church, is brought to Adam, i.e. Christ, when he is risen again and the two are united. It was necessary for God to cause sleep to fall upon Adam, just as it was necessary to cause sleep, i.e. death, to fall upon Christ, so that Eve, i.e. the church, could be born. Christ is the head of the church, as Adam was the head of his wife Eve. While Christ is the head, he loves his bride, the church, so much that he was willing to give his life for her. As you will recall, in the type, Adam and Eve, man and wife, become one flesh, one body. There is a union. Likewise, in the substance, as we discussed, individual believers, the outcalled ones, the church, are the bride of Christ, and we become one body in Christ, and his spirit dwells within us. We have the mind of Christ to the degree that we submit to his will and he sanctifies us progressively into his likeness. Because we are one and have his mind, it follows that the same mind which was in Christ to humbly submit and be a servant to his body would work within us so that we might submit as servants to one another. Yet, at the same time, each person in the body should rightly give honor and authority to those whom God is pleased to place in authority. In verse 23, Paul continues saying, quote, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body, unquote. Here, Paul moves from the previously discussed equality of being between Adam and Eve, man and wife, to the issue of function both in the creation type as well as the substance of Christ and his bride. As believers, we should have no problem recognizing the headship, rule, or authority of Christ as the proper attitude of his bride, the church, toward him. At the same time, Christ is a loving, sovereign King and Lord. He demonstrates his love, grace, and compassion towards his elect in his propitiatory sacrifice for us on the cross. On this note, it is critical to understand that the process begins, continues, and culminates all due on the part of God and his nature, not ours. In other words, God didn't respond by doing what he did because of anything any human ever did to move him. God initiated 
everything he has is or will do because of his love for those whom he has chosen according to his own sovereign will and pleasure. We love him because he first loved us. We have a relationship with God, but the relationship is not an equal relationship. God perfectly loved his own before we ever loved him. God continues to love his own despite the fact we never perfectly love him. God will always love his own even though we will only love him perfectly when he finishes the process of our sanctification and glory. So at every stage of the process, Christ is the head, the ruling authority in being and function over the church, including individual believers. However, when it comes to biblical marriage, i.e. man and wife, Paul reveals that according to God, the husband, i.e. the man, was designed to be the head of the wife, i.e. the woman, and function, not being. This is an important distinction because all too often in the past, sin, the world, and Satan have deceived many, including many in the church, into confusing the two. This regrettably has led many men in particular to believe that being the head means that men are better in nature. They are superior, more intelligent, more spiritual, closer to God, or some other quality that impresses God more than women. But all of these intrinsic qualities which refer to being are not the case. Instead, what is being discussed when Paul uses the word quote-unquote head is function. Function deals with authority and order. In verse 23 and 24, Paul gives a comparative example. Quote, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything." Unquote. Here, Paul deals with how the husband is the head of the wife. The answer is that the husband and wife are compared to Christ and his church. Clearly, in comparing the two, we see that every husband ever born falls short of Christ. So the question is, what does any husband have which can be compared to Christ? The answer is that apart from Christ and what he imputes to us freely by his grace through faith, we have nothing. But according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, quote, If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new, unquote. Essentially, if in fact Christ abides in anyone by faith, and we surrender to his will, then it is not the husband who is the head, but rather Christ in the husband who is head of all, including husband and the wife. 
it may sound as though the husband is being given the upper hand that he is being arbitrarily appointed as a leader. However, the truth is that both the husband and the wife have the responsibility to follow God's authority. The greater responsibility is that of the husband because he is held to a greater level of responsibility. The focus of the husband is not to be lord over his wife, but to set an example for his wife by making Jesus lord of his life. Like Christ, the husband's purpose is not to make a servant of his wife, but like Christ, be willing to be a servant and give his life for his wife as Christ was for his bride, the church. Likewise, Christ set the standard in terms of submission by being willingly subject to the will of God the Father. Christ was also voluntarily subject to death, even the death of the cross. Man is by God's grace to be subject to ever-increasing sanctification by submitting himself to the mind of Christ and to the will of God. As the man follows Christ, the wife also follows as a helpmate. The two complement one another in that where one may be weak, the other may give strength. Where one may be strong, the other may supply a humble spirit. When Paul says that the husband is the head, it is not to be implied that the wife is the feet. If the husband is by God's grace the head, then the wife is the neck. The neck holds up the head and turns the head. In a healthy body, all of the members are important. Each has its function and each depends upon the rest. It is only because of sin that any one member of the body attempts to boast its superiority and or independence from the body which nourishes it. This concludes this episode. Please join me again for part 7. Now, if you have any questions about God, the Bible, or the Christian faith, I encourage you to send me an email at pastor underscore Yeshua at yahoo.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R underscore Y-E-S-H-U-A at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening. Falls around me I rest I know that